0: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. There are few people that I enjoy talking to on the radio more than James Rosen. James Rosen. There may be no one that I enjoy talking to on the radio more than James Rosen. In addition to being the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and a veteran Washington correspondent, a best-selling historian, he is someone whose knowledge of the Beatles is able to match and perhaps even exceed his substantial knowledge of the Watergate scandal. He is someone that is quick with a historical fact. He is up to date on current events. He has helped uh, us cover incredibly an, an enormous number of stories and once or twice even been part of a number of stories, though not through his own designs. and. He He is someone who is just an incredibly informed person, an incredibly gifted person when it comes to speaking. And after reading his most recent book, which I'm about a third of the way through, he is just as gifted when it comes to the written word as well. And it's a real treat to be able to talk with him about his new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, which is volume one in a multi-volume biography of former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. James Rosen, it's great to talk to you again.
1: (laughs) Frank, what a kind introduction. Uh, Although, having heard it, I'm not sure that I even would want to run into me at a party. But... um I hope I live up to all of that. Thank you so much. It's good to be back with you.
0: It's great to talk with you again, and uh, I've missed talking with you. I want to talk with you primarily about the book, which I've been enjoying very much. I've also been following uh, some of the other radio interviews you've done with people like uh, my friend Joe Piscopo, my very good friend Arthur Idalla, and some others, and you've been so so just uh, right on the money, and you give the kind of interview that I think makes people inspired to learn more about a subject, not just through your book, but through all the available scholarship on the subject And I think that's really the mark of uh, not only somebody that uh, knows the material he's writing about well But somebody that uh, can inspire that that love of, of knowledge and learning in others Is really something very rare So I'm looking forward to talking with you about Scalia Rise to Greatness However, I do have to take advantage of the fact that you are one of the greatest experts On modern American political history Particularly as it relates to foreign policy that I know personally. And I have to ask you about the news that we learned recently about uh, President Jimmy Carter. It looks like he is entering the twilight of his years. He's chosen to enter hospice and discontinue getting any treatment. I seem to remember a few years ago, You mentioning something about how his administration's record on foreign policy has tended to look a a little bit better as more time has passed. Am I imagining that or did you say or something or write something along those lines?
1: I think what you have in mind is a story I did when I was working for the Sinclair Broadcast Group where I uh, profiled Stuart Eisenstadt, who was a former uh, aide to President Carter and who kept voluminous yellow pad notes uh, about his meetings, deep chronicling his meetings with President Carter, almost like the Nixon tapes, uh, and uh, who wrote a a lengthy, something like 800-page book about the Carter presidency. That was a rare kind of product because it was both a memoir but also an archival uh, expedition, if you will, as he went back into those yellow pad notes and printed a lot of them for the first time. And Eisenstadt in that book made the case that uh, the Carter presidency had a lot more continuity with the Reagan presidency than is generally understood. And uh, the 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 argument that Eisenstadt made on behalf of the success of the Carter presidency, I would say, was more focused on domestic policy. Mm. So I certainly would not have been heard saying that Jimmy Carter's foreign policy has stood up better over the test of time because there is the Iran debacle. Uh, which, of course, wasn't of his own making in many respects, but nonetheless, which dragged on and and sagged on his presidency. Uh, But in the domestic sphere, uh, Eisenstadt pointed out uh, how many different energy bills that uh, President Carter got passed through the Congress, like three of them in his one term, and uh, arms deals with various countries, uh, a defense uh, budgeting process that looked a lot like what Reagan would later embrace. That was the argument of the Eisenstadt book.
0: Uh, but it's not necessarily a view that you share
1: uh well the other point point i'd make to you frank is that uh, uh, the eisenstadt book received a warm welcome in various precincts of conservative media national review uh gave it a, a creditworthy review uh for example so um eisenstadt's book is a serious one and um and to the he he certainly has the archival wherewithal to launch a reconsideration of jimmy carter it's an extraordinary book in many ways
0: I know that you got to know Justice Scalia personally, and I know from my conversations with Arthur Idala, who was very much a protege of his and still speaks almost daily, glowingly, about him as a person and a man, what a larger-than-life personality that he was. Now, there are all sorts of people, I would say it it borders on tens of millions, maybe more, of people that never met Scalia but fell in love with him or got to know him through his scholarship, through his writing not only on the Supreme Court, but the Court of Appeals, and all the other assets of his work, some of which you chronicle in Scalia Rise to Great- Greatness. Did you get to, do, were you first fascinated with Scalia as a personality or a legal and judicial figure? What prompted your initial fascination with Scalia?
1: Uh, Frank, I first became aware of Justice Scalia when I was in my high school years in the 1980s. Uh, shortly after, I would have interacted with the the other Frank Morano.
0: That's right. Still, I'm not sure stu- which
1: of you is Frank Morano one and who is Frank Morano two? <laughs> I will defer to like him. He, one he, and thing two from Doctor Seuss. But, um, <laughs> he is still the chairman of uh, Community
0: Board Three on Staten Island. I will happily <laughs> defer to him.
1: To my former algebra teacher. Uh, in any case. Um, what was your question again? Uh, is,
0: w- what, an, what sparked your initial what tragic, fascination? Yeah, my high school years,
1: school year. shortly after the Frank, the other Frank Morano era. Um, I, I just watched a, a program called uh, The Constitution, That Delicate Balance on PBS. It was a live theater-in-the-round sort of thing with a live studio audience where a moderator, usually Fred Friendly, the former president of CBS News, uh, would lead a, a group of eminent thinkers – Uh, in hypothetical situations where they would all contribute from their own perspective. And Scalia did the show, Justice Scalia did the show a number of times. Uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor did the show, Gerald Ford, Dan Rather. It was a really uh, great group of people. And Scalia just immediately stuck out to me uh, as different fundamentally from everyone else because he was so funny and he was Mm. so plain speaking and he was so sarcastic at times and brilliant. And... um, That was in high school in the 80s. One of the first things I did when I got to Washington to become a Washington correspondent at the time for Fox News in 1999 was to write to Justice Scalia to ask for an interview. And this commenced between us a kind of unusual and often amusing correspondence that spanned about two years, excerpts from which will appear in volume two of this biography. we also had a pair of one-on-one lunches, just Justice Scalia and me. Uh, at his favorite place, both times, the A.V. Ristorante Italiano, a modest Italian restaurant that is now long gone, where he had been going since the 1950s. And, um, you know, we, we drank wine at those lunches. He made me eat vegetables off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I can't. <laughs> I, and he said, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. So I just, there I am shoveling Justice Scalia's vegetables into my mouth. This is 1999 at the A.V. Ristorante. And uh, he drove me back to my office both times in his car. And, uh, Frank, I was able to confirm with uh, classmates of his from the 1950s who had driven with him to debate tournaments all the way through Supreme Court clerks in the 21st century, and all of them confirmed that being a passenger in Justice Scalia's car was as nervous an experience for them as it had been for me. Uh, I told one clerk that I had been his passenger, and the response I got was, God help you. Uh, But, um, (laughs) so you know, from that early interaction with him, He was very generous to a young reporter a quarter century ago. Our off-the-record discussions at the restaurant will remain off-the-record. Portions of the correspondence will will be excerpted. Uh, But he was very generous to a young reporter all that distance ago, and, and it just dawned on me at that time that someday I will write about this man.
0: And you write about him, you did. And I know you're working on uh, subsequent volumes of the Scalia biography. But this book was so interesting and incredibly unique because rather than everything else that's been written about Scalia, you don't focus much on his time on the Supreme Court. The book actually ends when he gets to the Supreme Court, more or less. Uh, You focus on his upbringing, his early professional life, his early academic life. Why write this book and have the focus on the area of Scalia's life that has been the least talked about, the least written about? Why focus on the early years here?
1: Well, uh, originally, um, this was going to be a concise biography of Antonin Scalia. And the first thing I did was read the existing biographies of Antonin Scalia, and there were two of them. And uh, both were published when he was alive. One he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all. And both turned out pretty much in the same place, which was fairly open hostility to Justice Scalia and his legacy and his jurisprudence and his conduct. Uh, And as I continued my research and I got a hold of more and more documents, whole sets of different kinds of documents um, that were either overlooked by or unavailable to the previous biographers, I realized there was so much more to Mm. his story to be told uh, on every aspect of it. And so this biography, uh, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, which just came out is, I say, the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it's the first admiring one. And uh, every phase of his life in the previous biographies was su- subjected to the most tendentious cast and construction. Uh, and here, what we actually see is the making of an American hero and a devout Catholic raised by an Italian immigrant and the daughter of two Italian immigrants, and who uh, made themselves into professors and school teachers and a Supreme Court justice. And so Antonin Scalia's story really is a testimony to the power of the American dream. Uh, The previous biographers had a completely different cast of construction on his entire career. Uh, But the the legacy for which Scalia is best known, of course, which is his Supreme Court tenure, will be fully addressed in in volume two, the final volume, by the way. You keep saying multi-volumes. Uh, Mrs. Rosen was less than pleased with the two-year extension <laughs> on our lives that Justice Scalia just received with a second volume there will be a third i, I, can I assure think you.
0: Robert Caro initially started only with a three volume biography of Lyndon Johnson and he's still going so you may find there's a lot more to add after uh, after volume 2 uh, but let's talk uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the uh the time uh that uh, Antonin Scalia's early interactions with the Supreme Court be- before he joined it you chronicle one incident in... In 1976, in which he was an assistant attorney general and he found himself arguing before the Supreme Court. And a lot of people who either really admire Scalia or at least if they even if they don't admire him, really respect his legal acumen, may be surprised to learn that it didn't exactly go well. What happened?
1: So uh, in January 1976, Antonin Scalia, shortly shortly before his 40th birthday. Appeared before the Supreme Court for the only time in his career as an advocate before the Supreme Court. Uh, We're talking 1976, the Chief Justice was Warren Berger, but also on the court was William Rehnquist, with whom, of course, Scalia would later go on to serve. Uh, And the case was one in which the U.S. federal government was not a party to the case. So Scalia was there to argue uh, what they call an amicus brief or a friend of the court brief, just to advise the justices on the U.S. position on the legal issues at stake. And um, Scalia's oral argument before the Supreme Court, the only time, um, was fascinating because uh, he wasn't interrupted until eight minutes into his presentation. Now, Scalia didn't like waiting that long to mix it up. Uh, He didn't want to sit there and read the brief he had already submitted to the Supreme Court. And it was the same way when he was a justice, when oral arguments were made before Justice Scalia. He didn't want the lawyer to stand there and read his brief. He wanted to mix it up. Uh, And he he went eight long minutes without anyone saying anything. And then who was the first Supreme Court justice to address Antonin Scalia inside that ornate chamber, the courtroom? It was Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American justice on the Supreme Court, in effect welcoming the man who 10 years later would become the first Italian-American on the Supreme Court. Uh, Unfortunately, Justice Marshall's question was kind of convoluted, and it threw Scalia. And you can actually hear him on the oral – the recording of this that was made by the Supreme Court itself, uh, where Scalia is stammering almost like Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners. He's so thrown by the imprecision that was uh, hurled at him by Justice Marshall. He struggles for about a minute or so to try and uh, redirect the conversation in a way that would advance his arguments again. Uh, But he never quite recovered from it, and I write in the book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, that uh, as Scalia that day descended the 53 marble steps of the Supreme Court uh, he knew uh, that even though he had been a master of debate in high school and college and uh, even as an assistant attorney general running rings around Democratic lawmakers and committee hearings uh, this experience at the Supreme Court had humbled him in a sense and reminded him that even at his stage of the game there Mm. was room to improve
0: Scalia spent a lot of his uh, formative years, his early formative years uh, growing up in in Queens. Uh, how did Queens play a role in the kind of young man and then the kind of person that Scalia became? Did he always have a special place in his heart for Queens?
1: Absolutely. In fact, Scalia was born in Trenton, New Jersey and moved to Queens when he was 5. Both of the previous biographies got that fact wrong, I, I might point out. Um but, yes, Scalia loved Queens compared to Trenton, and um, he, he had a very active childhood playing every sport imaginable on the streets of Queens in the 40s and 50s, like stickball and basketball and Ringo levio. And, uh, you know, he, he spoke in later years as a justice about how, the freedom that he and his friends enjoyed, where it was basically go out and play until dark and come back and do your homework. Uh, and he said there was no organized this or that. There was no – the parents' lives didn't revolve around the, the kids' extracurricular activities. Um, but he, 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 he loved the multi-ethnic component to his neighborhood. But of course, Frank, it's impossible to separate out uh, Scalia's Queen's experience from his deep, devout Catholicism uh, and the heavily Catholic area of Queens that he grew up in at the time, Elmhurst. Um, Jimmy Breslin, the famous uh, New York Daily News columnist, when Scalia was nominated, uh, took the train out to that part of Queens and wrote in a very condescending way about the whole neighborhood. Uh, because Breslin was a liberal, and um, published a very odd column about it, and that's also reprinted in Scalia Rise to Greatness.
0: In this book, you go back and comb through and quote from some of Scalia's earliest professional writings, uh, things that uh, were published long before he was ever even mentioned as a, a possible candidate for the Supreme Court. In your analysis, was Scalia always such a good writer? His decisions and especially his dissents when he was on the courts became sort of legendary. There were apps uh, based on the kind of insults that you could create uh, based on uh, names that Scalia would would call other people politely and cleverly, but names and insults nonetheless. Was he always did he always have an acerbic wit in his legal writings?
1: So for this book, um, I accessed whole archives of different sets of documents that had Scalia's signature on them that had never been mined by previous scholars. One set, uh, such set of documents was the, from the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. This was a new agency created in 1970 by the Nixon administration in an effort to sort of assert administrative control under the White House of the sprawling telecom policy. Uh, that then existed and was spread across multiple agencies of the federal government. Uh, and this was the brainchild of a visionary from Kansas, a young guy named Tom Whitehead, who held multiple degrees from places like MIT and had worked at RAND and who understood the, that telecom was the future. And as his first move, he hired as his general counsel for this new agency, Antonin Scalia, who was only a couple of years older than him. And the two of them were sort of like Whitehead and Scalia were like a kind of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. <laughs> in the early 70s of the telecom age, fending off more powerful rivals like the FCC and so on. But they had one basic goal in mind, and it was revolutionary. And it really turbocharged the telecom revolution, and Antonin Scalia was present at the creation of this. Uh, Whitehead and Scalia instituted a policy called Open Skies. The idea was to move beyond the age they were in, in which only one quasi-public corporation was allowed to launch domestic space satellites. It was called ComSat. What Whitehead and Scalia wanted and and put and implemented was that any corporation that could demonstrate the requisite technical prowess and capital reserves that could launch a domestic space satellite should be allowed to do so in free market competition. And that's what they instituted, and it ushered in the telecom revolution. These guys at the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy were throwing throwing around terms that Most would not escape the lips of most ordinary Americans for another quarter century, like shared computer systems and, uh, you know, mobile communications. And Scalia himself um, wrote a paper in 1971. Again, this is all being published in Scalia Rise to Greatness for the first time, called The Computer Society, in which he predicted the Internet by describing how remote users at different terminals would be able not only to watch hundreds of different television channels, but to do their banking and to retrieve information from just about any library in the world. And Scalia also predicted the attendant privacy concerns that would arise, along with the internet. So he was essentially at uh, the, the heart of the, of the tech, telecom revolution of the early 1970s, which was probably the, one of the defining events of the era, alongside Watergate and, and any, anything else you'd like to name from the 70s.
0: If people are just tuning in, we're talking with James Rosen, chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, and the author of Scalia: Rise to Greatness, nineteen thirty-six through nineteen eighty-six. So much, and and I appreciate you letting me just jump around through different aspects of his life because you you cover a lot of ground here, far more than we could get to in the few minutes that we have together. But so much of what's been written about both Scalia and his colleague on the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been about their substantial academic heft, their incredible intelligence, their incredible uh, ideological arguments that gave life to their side of the uh, judicial aisle, as it were. And so much has been written about their friendship. How did Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg get to become such good friends? And what was it about one another that they both saw? in one another that attracted them to one another?
1: So, Frank, another set of government papers that I was the first researcher to make use of in Scalia Rise to Greatness is what I like to call the RBG Nino papers. Uh, We all know about the famous celebrated friendship of Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, which has been memorialized in stage plays and opera. Uh, And just, you know, scouting around on the Internet recently, I could find a a life coach who was urging us to find the Ginsburg for our inner Scalia. Uh, So it's a pretty widespread meme at this point, uh, and it signifies civility amongst ideological combatants. But the true story of how they began their friendship has never been told before. Uh, And having gone through the Ruth Bader Ginsburg papers at the Library of Congress, where there are 220 plus boxes of her papers stored, her papers from the Supreme Court are not open. Scalia's papers are largely closed at the Harvard Law School Library, um, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers from her tenure on the D.C. Circuit, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, uh, from where she served with Scalia from 82 to 86, uh, was open to researchers. And, Frank, the frankly, letters, the memos, the correspondence, the draft opinions, the handwritten notes that flew back and forth uh, from the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Antonin Scalia— in that first period where they got to know each other, 1982 to 1986 on the Court of Appeals, not only capture these two legal geniuses going at it over the First Amendment and other issues before the court, uh, but also their sparkling wit, their affection for each other. And it really does the, what I call the, the RBG Nino papers chronicles the birth and the blossoming of this famous friendship as no other account has ever managed to do.
0: And and so what was it about one another that caused them to hit it off so well? Was it their intelligence? Was it their sense of humor? Uh, Was it their shared interests outside of the law? Why did they care for one another so much?
1: Well, again, from the papers, the Ginsburg papers at the Library of Congress make very clear from from the outset that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg started out with almost a maternalistic attitude towards Antonin Scalia, where she was or Judge Scalia, where she was uh, repeatedly and needlessly expressing concern about the weight of his workload in the various memos that flew back, back and forth, and offering to relieve his burden at times with by taking this or that case, or expressing sorrow that he had such a thorny problem on his hands in another case. Um, and Scalia, for, for his part, you can see him let his hair down, in a sense, with uh, Judge Ginsburg. Uh, he's able to admit error to her in writing. He's Uh, at one point apologizes for uh, delivering an opinion late, quote, sloth that I am, uh, where she had pleaded with him on one point to just change, uh, modify a little bit so that the judges could be unanimous. Uh, He scribbled on her memo and sent it back to her chambers, let's be unanimous, A.S. Uh, The two of them sort of fell over each other, uh, and their correspondence is clearly more intimate and kind of playful and uh, intellectually playful uh, than not only any other sets of judges on that court at that time, and I read the papers of Robert Bork and and others who served on the court with Scalia and Ginsburg at that time, but they're more intimate and and intellectually playful probably than the correspondence of any two judges on any court at any time. And again, it's all published for the first time here.
0: Incredible. I, I can't imagine the amount of time and effort that went into uh putting this book together. How long have you been working on this book by the way?
1: All right, so we're not going to trace it all the way back to the 1980s and the constitution that delicate balance on PBS with Fred Friendly, right? We're not going that far back. Uh I would say probably around 2017. I had a hiatus on it but um for a while but it's uh it's probably about five years
0: it's uh, really incredible. Tell me about uh Scalia's parents. I know that his father was sort of a legendary educator at uh, at Brooklyn College, but uh, what do we know about what they were like as parents? Were they uh, forcing him were they were they er- the early equivalent of uh, tiger moms and tiger dads at the time, or <laughs> did they take more of a hands hands off approach?
1: I think uh, any principled originalist, Frank, would reject the attempt to uh, graft onto the situation, <laughs> modern-day terms like, but um, uh, Antonin Scalia's father, as we mentioned, I think, uh, came to the United States in 1920 uh, with $400 in his pocket and not knowing English, and made of himself a renowned professor in Romance languages at Brooklyn College, um, and Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of Italian immigrants, and she made herself into a schoolteacher. And they were developed Catholics. And from those three sets of influences, the Catholic Church with its liturgy and its sacred foundational texts, and from the influence of his father, whose actual written published works emphasized the perils of a distortion of original texts by those who would be the translator or the interpreter— Uh, And from his mom, who uh, venerated the classics in her own way and um, made sure that young Antonin Scalia stayed uh, on the right course in life, Uh, Scalia emerged with a profound reverence for the original meaning of sacred texts, and he carried this forward with him uh, into his work as a judge and a justice.
0: As far as you can tell, and as far as you're aware, did his parents share his ideological philosophy, his judicial philosophy? Now, if you're building a Mount Rushmore of 20th century conservatism, it would be difficult not to put Scalia up there. Were his parents in that same vein?
1: So um, when Scalia was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1986, um, a reporter, a newspaper reporter, Uh, interviewed someone who had known the Scalia family way back when Antonin Scalia was a Cub Scout and such, and uh, who said that uh, the son may have turned out conservative, but the father wasn't that way. The father was a liberal. Um, There is some interesting material in the book about um, Salvatore Eugene Scalia's uh, associations in Italy prior to his emigration to the United States. Uh, But um, In any case, uh, yes, there's some reason to believe there might have been some ideological divide between uh, Scalia and his father. But his father was just a very critical man in general. And uh, one of Scalia's daughters recounts in the book in her interview with me uh, how she would watch uh, Scalia's father, even when Scalia had become a judge on the Court of Appeals, uh, read Scalia would stand at home and maybe have a whiskey sour or something, and he would read the funny papers. Uh, He would read the comic strips. And Scalia's father, even when Scalia was a judge and would do this at night, would sit there and criticize his son. What kind of man reads the funny papers? <laughs>
0: Jeez, that must have been a delight. Before we uh, before we run out of time, James, I have to ask you about this. If there's someone that's uh, almost as well known for an originalist judicial philosophy in the 1980s, it was probably uh, Judge Robert Bork. He never made it to the Supreme Court. Obviously, Scalia did. You're right, though, that there was something of a rivalry between Bork and Scalia. Why was that, and what was the nature of that rivalry? How did it manifest itself?
1: If it was principally to be uh, uh, described as a rivalry, it would have to be described as a friendly rivalry. The Borks and the Scalia's were dear friends as couples. Their, their kids hung out. Uh, one time, Gene Scalia, the son of, of Justice Scalia, a prominent attorney in his own right, the former Trump cabinet secretary, told me that after a party at the Scalia's house when all the guests had left, his father turned around and said to, to Gene, this is why you study hard and work hard in school, so you can grow up and have friends like Bob Bork. Um, But uh, a rift arose uh, between Bork and Scalia on a particular First Amendment case where Judge Bork, in his ruling, uh, declared that uh, the modern realities of the libel laws required that there be some evolution of how judges or justices should interpret the First Amendment, and that this uh, evolution might even be a good thing even if it meant some judicial subjectivity was introduced into the, the, the judging business. And to Scalia, of course, that was a kind of a heresy, um, a kind of a call to arms for an imperial judiciary, of the kind that he and Bork had spent 15 years uh, denouncing. And Scalia wrote a famous concurrence just to take aim at what Bork had written. And uh, Bork was still singing about that many years later and writing about it as late as 1989. Uh, but just as that crack in the, in, in Scalia's bond with Robert Bork formed, um, thus began, or just around that time, Scalia's famous relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: I know that uh, you originally hail from Staten Island, which many people regard, even more so than, uh, than Naples, Italy, as the pizza capital of the world. I imagine <laughs> for someone that was raised on that kind of cuisine and that kind of fare early in uh, early in your life it it would have been difficult for you to make the transition full time to Washington DC if you're mm. if you're judging it objectively how do you judge the uh, pizza in the uh, beltway area and is there a pizza place in DC or near DC that at least comes close to approximating the kind of pizza you grew up with on Staten Island
1: <laughs> I'm not sure a proper newsman would Speak to the airwaves to promote an individual corporation or business. Um, <laughs> I can't be doing endorsements, uh, not without being paid anyway. Uh, but Fair enough. I would just say in general, D.C. has a thriving pizza scene. There's lots of good places to get pizza, uh, even get pizza delivered. Um, you know, and uh, we live in the district and we can attest that there's excellent pizza to be had here, including the sort of jumbo slice that was probably born in like, uh greenwich village or wherever but like uh this kind of slice that's you know twice the size of your head
0: duly noted james uh perhaps i can persuade you to tell me uh off air uh james uh, (laughs) appreciate this very much i hope everybody gets the book scalia rise to greatness 1936 to 1986 i'm looking forward to reading the rest of this book and i'll look forward to talking with you again soon
1: thanks for your kindness frank
0: Thank you, James Rosen. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of midnight. Midnight.